A poem is a small machine made of words. William Carlos Williams. Welcome to the Small Machine Talks, exploring the poetry scene of Central Canada and beyond with Amanda Earle and A.M. Kozak. Hi, everyone. This is the Small Machine Talks, episode 49. I'm Amanda Earle. I'm A.M. Kozak. And we're here with Jason Christie. Hi, Jason. How are you? I'm well today. Thank you. How are you? Pretty good. Pretty good. I'm not hungover or anything like that at all. Oh, no. There's <laughs> probably no one here that would be. Probably no one is. There you go. Uh, yeah, it's, it's Sunday, August 25th when we're recording this, and uh, we're going to talk to Jason about uh, many things. But first, we'll, uh, we'll, Aaron will read a little bio. Jason Christie is the author of Canada Post, iRobot, Unknown Actor, and a co-editor of Shift and Switch, New Canadian Poetry. He has five chapbooks from Above Ground Press, including The Charm, Random Lines Equals Random Choice, and Glass Language. Language. I should have practiced. I just realized that wasn't the word language. I never noticed that either. Naughty, naughty. Is that a typo? I don't think I noticed that either. <laughs> Glass language. Let's look at the chapbook. Sorry. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. Glass language on the on the chapbook itself is glass language. So apparently there's a typo in the book, Coach House. Uh, no, I'm wondering. Am I saying this word wrong? Oh no, no. No, I'm saying yeah. The the, the A is before the U in the bio. I think that's on me. Uh, <laughs> as any writer knows, we write our own bios. So, Jason is the responsible for the typo. I've, well, hey, I've done you it. really could have went and said this is a comment on language or something. Yeah, the structures that uh, force us to conform it. to. Uh... <laughs> there you go. <laughs> sure, let's roll with that. We've done our job now. We found the typo. We can all go home. No, <laughs> and thank you for having me. There you go. <laughs> Instead of that, we're gonna we're gonna start and we're gonna talk start talking about uh, cursed. Is it cursed objects or cursed objects? Which do you? Oh, oh I like them both. It's um, like the Sylvester, uh, you know, the uh, cats version of cursed curses. No, no, whatever it's. Yeah, I, li I liked cursed. Uh, but I felt like it was a little too affected. Like it it was, but I like it a lot um, for that sort of throwback sound. Uh, and a lot of the book deals with archaic structures or yeah. old timey things uh, and technology that, that dates quickly. So cursed kind of works with that. But uh, it is cursed objects. However, right. you can say it however you want. All right. You could always go with because there's the book title and there's also a litany for cursed objects in mm -hmm. the end you could go cursed objects for the title of the poem and then cursed objects for the book if you like and you have the flexibility to call it whatever you want depending on the day there you go That's as right. you've seen from the uh, typo at the back uh yeah. it's sometimes, all it's all up in the air at this sometimes point. language is language or whatever That's fine. yeah i'm intrigued with the idea of the folly that opens the book not the folly of the book but the folly <laughs> in the book the follies in the book can you talk about what a folly is and what initially inspired you to write about the folly? How individual structures of the follies in the book inspired the form and content? Yeah, so um, I'm I'm going to do maybe uh, the the bad thing and talk about that poem um, not as a finished object but as a thing that developed over time. Uh, my wife bought me a collection of notebooks when we lived in Vancouver. Gosh, two thousand and 10-ish, 10, 10, 2009. 
and each notebook had a color. And so at the time I thought, I'm gonna I'm gonna fill every book with research and poetry about that color. Oh yeah, I've always I always try to do stuff like that. It never works. <laughs> and it didn't know. work, work at all. Why is that? So each one has like ten to twenty pages at the start and then they're blank at the end. But I collected all the material from that and you really put liked yellow it. in there. Yellow is in there. Yeah, so some of that sort of survived the editing process and uh, the poems evolution over time. But uh, initially they started as like meditations on color and all the sort of stories around the colors, all of the um, physical properties that make that color manifest. Uh, so there's there's little bits of that in the poem throughout. Um, and what I liked about color is it's sort of like, um, it's, it's artificial in a lot of ways. Like it's the product of our eyes sort of figuring light out. Uh, so it's not actually like inherent in things in a way, sort of in that weird space of uh, existing, but also existing as observed by something. Hmm. Um, and so that's thematically connected to the yeah. rest of the, the book. Do you feel um, the same way about sound? Because I noticed the, the book opens with something called noise. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. So like, I mean, what if a, if a tree falls in the forest, you know, did somebody cut it down or whatever the... The, par the parable did anyone, is. Did anyone yeah. hear it? I think. Did anyone hear it? Yeah. <laughs> did someone cut it down? That's the, that's that's the 21st century version of it. Was it yeah. part of a clear cutting experience? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So like if a tree burns in the forest, it would be yeah, like the, yeah. right. ugh, the contemporary version. But um, yeah, sound, I think, operates in a similar way, right? Like it's always at the, mm -hmm. at the um, something that we experience and then translate into meaningful things. So noise is an example of that. It's noise until you turn it into something else. Um, it's usually a byproduct of something else. Um, one person's music is another person's noise. So I, I sort of like to play with that um, aspect of it. I would say language even functions that way. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. if, if you agree with all the structures that go together to make something uh, make sense, like a sentence or a poem or something, when you read it, you'll say that that makes sense to me. That's the way language should be. And I get it. Um, and then if you mess with that at all, people get sort of, upset sometimes if it doesn't match their version in their head of what it should be um and so yeah so i think like color sound um language poetry like they all sort of exist in this state where a lot of it is in the eye of the beholder or the mind of the thinker um that turns it into the thing that we think it should be uh, now we're sort of well away from that poem, and I promise to get back to it. But uh, <laughs> but before we move on, I, I just wanted to say that's kind of the role of objects in this book, too. Uh, they used to classically be things that we apprehended or comprehended. And that there was a direct arrow between us as the user of the object or the owner of the object. Mm -hmm. um, and, and nowadays, it seems that that's getting like a muddy space, like... Um, mm -hmm. We have these devices in our pockets and in our homes now that that know us that are trying every day to get to know us better mm -hmm. uh, as a collection of data points that they assemble into like me my proclivities my interests the things i mm -hmm. search um if you have like any sort of medical technology body temperature ovulation cycle yeah. <laughs> you name it it's it's being tracked and, and used to sort of form an idea of you uh so in a weird way like we've become the object that's being owned and being understood and being uh, considered and all of these things. So I think that's kind of fascinating. Um, the follies in this book are sort of like uh, something I kind of fell in love with in a way because they're fake, like they're, yeah. they're completely fake, like they're architectural objects that somebody built 
and had no intention of living in, had no intention of like using for anything other than like pleasure. They just want to look at it and be like, there's a small Taj Mahal. <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh, and, and so part of me is sort of interested in that because uh, we're at a, you know, we're sort of at a point in time where um, things that are purely decorative uh, kind of hint at uh, the privilege that we enjoy. Like we don't need our homes to just be shelter anymore. They can be a castle. They can be a boat. They can be whatever we want them to be. They can be purely decorative and we won't die <laughs> inside them. We might. <laughs> yeah, we might from natural causes or other other things. But, you know, they, they still protect us from the environment. They do the yeah. basics of shelter. Um, but we've moved beyond just like sort of pure necessity in a lot of ways. Um, so, yeah, I think follies are interesting in that sense. They're just these objects that uh, somebody built just for fun. But how did you get from, um, maybe, I don't know, you might not remember. <laughs> how, did, how did you get from um, uh, from writing about color to talking about, to, to learning about follies? I mean, did you, is are they something you always knew about? Because I found myself um, looking up a few of them to see if they mm. were real. Because I thought, well, maybe it's just, invent I mean, I'd heard of the idea of the folly before, but just as, you know, the structure that was there, it was you put the structure and you could have easily, you could have, if you'd wanted to, made up even made up follies, right? So I had to check to see. Um, uh, they are and I found all a couple real. of them. Yeah, yeah. I <laughs> yeah. didn't find all of them. So they are all real. And look, I wasn't. I wasn't. I did only looked at a couple. Of, oh, he's. They're not just products of imagination, which I would have totally liked as well. Like I, I wouldn't have had a problem with it. These aren't real. God damn it! <laughs> Christy. Yeah. Again, once more, you've disappointed me. No, oh, no. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> Never disappointed me. So, so, so um, yeah. So what? Where did? Where did the? Where did you? What made you start? What was the initial reason for or or inspiration for the follies? Yeah, I should should connect the dots. Um, and also maybe maybe also use this as a chance to talk a little bit more about another conceit of the book. Um, I like that conceit of the book. In it, yeah, in it, I'm, I'm kind of critical of things that yes. are like polished or finished or like yeah. well wrought. Um, and so having said that, it would be no surprise then to say in most cases, the titles have very little to do with the actual poems. Yep. And that, maybe that's inappropriate for a poet to say. Maybe I'm supposed to have some sort of deep meaning behind <laughs> everything I do. Uh, but I, I'm a little critical of that kind of poetry. Um, and so the titles are sort of playfully connected to what's inside. Um, uh, and, and they definitely weren't. Like the, yeah. the transition from the color research, color poetry to this um, was a long one. And... Uh, it was kind of like a, a poem in search of a purpose. Like I had all this material that I loved and I wanted to use. Uh, but at a certain point I realized I wasn't really gonna go as deep with like the color stuff as I as maybe it should have been. Yeah. So I was thinking, is this a chapbook? Is this just gonna go in the garbage? Like, I don't know what to do with this. Um, and then I was reading about follies and sort of realized like um, the sort of artificiality of their 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 construction and their nature um, worked really well with a lot of the subject matter in the poems. Mm. Um, so it was sort of like I had that aha moment where I was like, these things are completely unrelated or are they? Yeah. <laughs> and then I gathered them That's all together great. and really liked how they were um, interacting and working together. And then uh, over time, I sort of retconned the 
the Follies in and and went back and found places that made sense to kind of uh, drop in bits that were about the Follies and even the specific Follies. Like uh, they maybe didn't start out connected, but by the end, there's a connection. Their their connection started to appear. So um, Broadway Tower is a tower. Mm -hmm. The vertical lines yeah. throughout the poem kind of give you that impression. Um, one of them. Uh, the sway tower, I think. It's yeah, with the, the, with the re and even even the uh, even you've repeated uh, certain you know lines have been repeated throughout. There it gives a, a swaying feel to the yeah, and um, the physically too the form as well. So and then there was one like the the I think the pyramid or triangle triangular lodge yeah, like it's yeah. in the shape of triangles. So, Fun. So I tried to find ways to sort of connect them, um, and then the obelisk. I thought like obelisks are meant to be sort of these strange things so it seemed to fit with that that material in that poem pretty well um so it was all kind of like a, a playful romp through intentionality in some ways good words good uh, yeah. words I, I feel satisfied with that answer thank you <laughs> phew phew otherwise we'd be stuck on that no i'm just kidding you're starting to get into things like um we talk a little bit about architecture and buildings and that kind of stuff so there's references to architecture in the entire book and later in the book in king of ruins rule of nothing the speaker pleads um amanda says a strong word <laughs> i think it applies it's entirely appropriate yeah. for, a, for a counterpoint to all my anxious desires for control and unarchitecture for thinking and there are references to wanting a tower that is not useful for thinking the architectures in the book are out of the box architectures structures routines and hierarchies that are part of daily life and there also seems to be a relationship between architecture and words like in the casino at marino broadway tower and king of ruins rule of nothing how does this relate to what you've chosen to do in the book with form in particular That's yeah a big question. Wow. i almost feel like you almost you sort of have already dealt somewhat with that and yeah, then, yeah 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 i love to sort of like put up these structures and then like undermine them and, mm -hmm. and tear them down or or just let them be sort of uh, fun and fake and call that out um, so I think uh, that pleads is, is I think an entirely appropriate word uh, for that poem because I'm underlining it, <laughs> it uh, I think in that poem I'm, I'm kind of pleading with myself and and, and maybe like a, yeah. a version of myself that that I used to be to sort of like let it go um, and uh, and it, in that sense, is the sort of like, like I mentioned earlier, the idea of a well-wrought thing, mm -hmm. which, which, on the surface, always seems objectively true or pure or whatever you want to call it. Right. But it's thoroughly reinforced by biases throughout, um, and and that often gets like people pretend they don't exist. People pretend they're not there. Yeah. It's uh, Shakespeare's just incredible. It's not like a. You know, there's no, there are no politics behind that. <laughs> Him being this sort of privileged position in the canon. Um, so I think like it, I was looking for ways to um, undermine my own like authority, my own agency in some mm -hmm. ways. And a lot of the book kind of plays with that idea. Um, the poems that appear later, uh, The Thing, and uh, I think there are three of them that kind of play around with the idea of The Thing. Yeah. Uh, where there one has no vowels, one has no consonants. Yeah. Um, initially, they didn't have any sort of key between them. There was no like code oh, to figure okay. out. It wasn't a puzzle <laughs> or anything. 
And uh, it just it drove people a little mental because they would sit there scratching out like the letters, trying to figure out what you mean, oh, uh, what they how they like would... this. <laughs> <laughs> you tried that. Uh, the person is writing the vowels in between. Oh, them. I see. And I apologize. Uh, I promise there is a key now. Yeah. Um, yes, the poem uh, slowing the time, the thing into focus. As the... yeah, is that right? That is, that uh, you've. Given, I mean, it's not exactly the same, but it's there. No, the key isn't in the book. Oh, damn it! Sorry. Well, well then I feel fine about having done spent all the that labor. In the book. I thought it was. It's, it's, uh, I thought all the vowels would fit into the words, all the consonants, and then they would just become the that's yeah. the poem, right? Is that... You can't you can't see this in Radio Land, but I'm nodding at Aaron. <laughs> I figured that out very quickly. I'm, I'm very proud of myself. I'm shaking my head, whatever Good. that word is. I'm shaking my head. No, what I'm a not. relief. Well, because um, it's the thing, and then IE is yeah, the yeah. middle of the vowel one, so that, that's, that's kind of what tipped me off, because those are the two vowels that were missing in the consonant poem. Yeah, and my editor correctly called me out, and she was like, you're being a bit of a dick. <laughs> <laughs> so, please. I mean, she was much more eloquent and, uh, and kind. She didn't say that. Uh, and she's an incredible editor. So she worked with me on like figuring out how to do that better and make that poem better. And they're both like so much better as a result. But it was sort of to, to playfully poke at that idea, right? Of, um, oh, you wrote this incredible poem? Sure. What if we took all the vowels out? What if we took all the consonants <laughs> out? Um, I was just telling Amanda before you got here that um, one of the things I really liked about this book is the variety and different things that you're doing. Um, there's a lot of, yeah, different forms, um, different elements of style. There's a lot of, what's the word? It's a large breadth to it, maybe? I don't know. I think it's one example of your vowel-less and consonant-less poem. Yeah, I think you're you're right, Aaron, that... Uh... He and accepts your praise. It, thank, thank you. I, I, I'm, very, I'm, I'm very uncomfortable with praise, so I'm trying to quickly move on to like some uh, some some answer to that. Or, well, maybe it was an insult saying it's too it. all over the place. Yes, thank yeah. you. That's I can work with insults. Um, we'll try now in the rest of the questions to bring in some you. insults because yes. all the rest is just praise. So you know. yeah, just pepper it with like, "Hey, dummy." And stuff right. like that. <laughs> Try that. So, so um, but to what you're saying here, and like that, that builds on that idea of um, like not not doing something that's just like a well wrought thing, like a series of sonnets or a you know left margin aligned poem on page after page after page with the mm -hmm. title at the top that's quippy and then lyrical observation and the like. There's nothing wrong with that kind of poetry, but so you're describing exactly how I write. Oh no, and me too. Right? <laughs> yeah. That's it is how he writes pretty much. No, and me, no, it isn't. And me too. I mean, the, the charm section is that, right? Like it's it's my sort of like return to form in a way. Um, but I wanted to see what, like, how could I get away from that? Like, how could, what could I do outside of that uh, without going to the other side of the spectrum, which would be like rigid control over form. Um, even though those vowel and consonant poems uh, have like a trick to them, I wanted to avoid that sort of like clever place where people are like, oh, it's an entire book that I wrote never once mentioning the word egg or something, but it's called the chicken. And everyone's <laughs> supposed to clap politely and then like, oh, I, I get know. it. Yeah. That's, a good, that's a good idea. That's, yeah, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. Or, or, you know, it had this uh, like it's I didn't want it to be that sort of just like clever thing where like people were like, oh, OK, now I get it. I'll never read the book again. Right. Thanks. <laughs> um, I figured out the riddle.
you wanted it to also be good. Well, or have more more than yeah. just <laughs> yeah. I, I hope it's good, but like I, I'm kind of picking up on like a like con- lyrical conceptualism uh, through like Ted Berrigan, um, mm-hmm. you know, instead of through Wulipo or you know Quino or somebody. Like it's this is more um, fun and mm-hmm. and free, and it's not about solving the riddle. It's about enjoying the poem, mm-hmm. however it ends up there. I mean, it was fun to read. It was the, the the thing, thing. And it was fun to read as if there were no vowels in it, mm-hmm. you know, just to kind of play. Would you say that listen. the book is playful? I would say that. And I did say that. In fact, in yes. question three, I said it's playful <laughs> and foreign content, including various creation methods, such as what we've just talked about, leaving out the vowels in the thing, compiling a bunch of great yellows in Connolly's Folly, the obelisk. And we, he let it be noted that Jason has stroked the uh, yellow uh, cover on top of the table that we put down <laughs> to make it less clunky sounding for you, the listener. See how much we care about you. Okay, and using non-standard sta- punch punctuation like the absolute what is this the absolute value that's straight up the vertical line yes did you add that that absolutely okay okay the straight up and line up and down vertical line thing in broadway tower and veil and the humor and and word and sound play throughout at the same time there's a lot of melancholy thoughts on loneliness and alienation there is did Mm -hmm. you know okay (laughs) i'm reading this because i wrote these questions some time ago now and i don't recall anyway okay how how does the lightness of play and the dark of despair fit together in this book and why do you think both are necessary or do you interesting yeah this is one of my favorite questions oh Um, good i wonder who wrote it yes and uh (laughs) idea (laughs) yeah it uh i mean you can never get too far away from yourself no matter how hard you try Mm. so uh (laughs) So that's a lot of me and, and my like my thinking um, is that is about that darkness, despair, loneliness, melancholy um, as a very creative and generative thing, mm-hmm. I find. Um, my personality type is such that um, I exist in sort of a state of chaos and crisis. And uh, in the absence of one, will sort of like make mini ones for myself by worrying or doubting or despairing, um, and then never really realizing that that is actually cathartic or or a catalyst for thinking for me. Hmm. So I have to I have to not know that you know, like once I figure out like oh right I thrive when I'm in chaos I thrive when I'm faced yeah. with a crisis yeah as long as I don't know that I'm thriving I can be very productive. Well, you doubt it, right? If you if you say oh. I, oh, well, I'm handling this very well. I mean, there, there's got to be something wrong with that thought, right? Yeah, right or there. Like, like, that's, like that's crisis like, averted. Like yeah, you're really. out of that mode. Then, and, then I no longer need to think about things. Yeah, and so it's a weird uh, sort of acknowledgement that like I need some element of that in my life to, mm. to keep moving forward, to keep generating new content, to keep thinking through these things. Um, Do you mean thrive in the sense of your writing and creativity or just in general, life in general? Actually in general. Yeah. yeah. Like there has to be some mm-hmm. kind of little edge to a... Uh, to get me going or else I just will, you know, settle into complacency or something. So a deadline or a... Or a... Deadline, uh, risk. Risk. Yeah. I was actually talking about the same sort of thing yesterday. Um, how once you're, because I'm, you know, getting into my 30s now and getting more comfortable in like your job, your relationships, your friend, your patterns, and then it can kind of become, become yeah, that complacency. But at the same time, whenever we're going through the chaos or the hardship, we're always kind of wanting to get to that complacency. Mm-hmm. We want to get out of that chaotic state. So it's kind of an interesting 
um, problem, I guess, is you have to, if you're in a comfortable state with your, with your life, introducing those sort of elements of chaos to keep things interesting or to be creative or to just get satisfaction, mm-hmm. I guess. And I found like poetry is often the site of that for me, right? Like it, it, the complacency might be expressed by just writing the same thing over and over again. And then I realize, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm just, there, like I'm, I'm doing that again and I'll yeah. have to shake it up or try something else. Um, try something that's a little intimidating or scary. Uh, and, and in this book, uh, that kind of manifests with the formal play and all of those things. I wasn't sure how it would be received. I w- wasn't sure if it would work like, um, but, uh, but it was very enjoyable to, to, to write that way and to work through that. Um, and so, and so like in the book, I didn't do it on purpose, but I found I, I was making reference a lot to the romantics and yeah. their writing, yeah. um, kind of unintentionally, but, uh, but then when I realized that I was like, oh, okay, well that fits with this dark and light and, mm-hmm. um, and the idea of it being sort of a generative thing and, uh you know, wandering lonely as a cloud and all of that (laughs) stuff. Um, And, uh, and then trying to understand, like, like if these objects are starting to perceive us and like understand the world, like Mm -hmm. when do they go through their rebellious, emotional, romantic phase? (laughs) 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 So uh, the reference to the prelude in the end, uh, which is Wordsworth's like kind of epic um, biographical poem, autobiographical poem uh was sort of like like a kind of tipping up the hat to that like these objects are discovering these things and mm-hmm. it's only a matter of time before they have a moody teenage period yeah <laughs> we'll get back into more of the technology aspects of it i think a little later on mm-hmm. um and similarly the the book makes a lot of references to technology but it also includes numerous references to the natural world Nature seems almost like a balm to the tech world, light especially, and at times that seems to serve as a reminder of reality or materiality. What do you think of the role of nature is, what do you think the role of nature is in your work here and other works that you've written? Um, I mean, nature is just another construct, right? Like it's, it's as fake as technology in a sense, or as real as technology, like however you want to put that. <laughs> if you, we, we asked people uh, at some point uh, if, if they'd like to give us a quote uh, to put up with their photo mm-hmm. afterwards. If you want to choose nature as just as fake as technology, <laughs> I don't know, I like it, but you don't have to, of course. Please before. elaborate. Yeah, that's, I guess that's not, and uh, scene. <laughs> and then the book sales plummet. No, I'm <laughs> just kidding. Well, but like, no, I, I'm kidding. I mean, I'm kidding we have these ideas of nature as like something that exists uh beyond us it's like mm-hmm. you yeah. know and then we're stomping it around and it ruining it because we're awful and and uh although i don't necessarily like slavoj zizek very much um you know he's all right but i don't mean to sort of like put him out there as i don't like, know who slavoj zizek is and you will have to spell it for me later for the, the for my links theorist. yeah he's Thank a theorist you. guy okay he, he uh i remember he i did love this, his name <laughs> he, yeah he did this thing where he and i might be mispronouncing it but that's fine know. um he did this thing where he was sort of like like he was standing outside of a garbage dump and i don't remember where this was maybe someone can look it up i don't know but uh he was standing outside a garbage dump and he was basically like this is nature and if you don't think this is nature, then that's part of the problem. Like mm-hmm. nature, you're living in nature. 
And it's not separate. You are nature. Yeah. And mm -hmm. this garbage is nature. And until we fix that concept that like nature is this pure thing and we're terrible people, like we're never going to try and better our world. Like nature is something that we're sure. always just going to ruin. Um, is it kind of because we're, we need to see our interaction with it to think we have like power over influencing it? I think maybe we need to understand that like we are it, yeah. you know, like same reason people go to the gym is the same reason they should probably not throw their cigarette butt in the street or yep. use bottled water like it's, it's a health issue it's, yeah, yeah like it, it like the it, it's i think that um and so these versions of nature that get constructed around us are usually um ego driven or there's usually another motivation right like for the the person who goes off into nature like it's a really important thing for them it's part of their identity to have nature be that thing mm -hmm. and then they come back and assume it's objective and and they look at other people who don't think that way and they're like well you know how could you not um and i've, I've always found that uncomfortable like this idea that nature is something apart yeah ideal or ideal. pure well that, um, and, and if you're interacting in the book with the romantics of course they were the big ones who they were they they, they saw they saw themselves as mastering nature they were outside of yeah in the sense that they wanted to tame it right tame it but also sort of like deep respect for the like yeah. wild yeah. forces at play yeah in and around them um like their their idea of like the source of all creativity is the mm -hmm. west wind yeah, blowing yeah. in and you know, there's right. all kinds of problems with with that but um but yeah and and so like they had a version of nature that was sort of more immediate more around them more like woven yeah. in woven into their their thinking and their writing and so i think that appeals um and uh and so like i hope what comes across in the book is that i'm kind of like using nature in the same way i use technology mm -hmm. right it's mm -hmm. not it's yeah. not a default it's not a it's not an accepted sort of natural pure thing um that that offers respite or like it's not a counterbalance necessarily to technology i think they each solve different problems and provide for different experiences mm -hmm. i wouldn't really set them up in opposition do you think that is the same for people who live differently than we would here in a city so if you're living somewhere more rurally or more remotely and your lifestyle and the way in which you interact with nature is less of an escapism or an idealized state it's more more obviously interwoven do you think that mm -hmm. the how it's viewed would be would be different maybe um i mean you always hear people who grew up on farms sort of talking about uh pets differently right yeah. they have like farm cats and yeah. dogs who never come in the house they just live outside and um and there's a real different relationship to uh the land like in a way mm -hmm. um that could maybe be a different thing um but i mean like i'm be the first to admit like i'm a city person through and through like mm -hmm. when i grew up i lived in a town that had like farmers fields all around it but now that town is like a feeder community for toronto so it's certainly not the place that it was when i lived there and yeah. it was changing even then um but i i think like like there's sort of nature as a thing and then there's nature the way that like i've sort of put it in the book and, mm -hmm. and used it in the book um and and i would say the, like what i like to do is sort of 
so I do this formally, I do this thematically, uh, sometimes like in the same line in a poem, but mm -hmm. I like to really just sort of like Mix. switch things up. Yeah. And so if I feel like I've been writing about like technology for a while, I'll throw in some nature or <laughs> let's take a nature break <laughs> culture or, you know pop culture or like something just yeah. to just to mix it up um interesting to kind of get out of uh whatever mode i was in um introducing that chaos yeah maybe that's a good way to put it yeah just to to throw a <laughs> wrench into <laughs> my own subjectivity um you want to talk about funny things amanda funny thing well okay I <laughs> <laughs> sounds sounds odd. It's but a I'll, lot of pressure. It's a lot of pressure, but I think I can say that there are a lot of funny lines in the book, such as the line, wouldn't it be great if I could get the reader to help me clean my garage? Yeah, I took that. Yeah, <laughs> and, that. And, and the thing about and, and King of Ruins, Ruler of Nothing, and the other thing too is, um, yeah, you, you actually, you're addressing readers directly quite a lot as you're breaking that wall between reader and writer, which is interesting. So before I ask this question, I would say it's not in the, in the but... Uh, what uh, what made you decide to uh, um, or or how how um, intentional was it to uh, address the reader directly like that? Hmm. Uh, so there's several layers of pretension in my answer to that question. Excellent. Several <laughs> layers. I'll, of I'll pretension. try to count all the layers. Uh, yeah, I'm wondering it'll be a game for everyone at home. Drink when Jason says something pretentious. Uh, mm. People are hammered by this point. But, um, <laughs> they were hammered a long time ago, early on in the podcast when I started speaking, so it's okay. <laughs> uh, the, uh, so this is something I've always been interested in is that that uh, fourth wall. Uh, mm -hmm. I think it, it's in the questions a bit later, but taking Oops. apart that idea of the, the you know, the, the well-wrought urn, the thing that everyone looks at and is mm -hmm. like, you know, this is outside of me. This is a play that I'm watching it and I'll have emotional reactions to it, but it has nothing to do with me. Um, trying to break down that relationship uh, has mm -hmm. always been something I've been very interested in and curious about. Um, and when I was doing my um, BA, uh, I was fortunate enough to study with Steve McCaffrey, who's a oh, great. Oh, yeah. Kind yeah. Of Canadian poet. Yeah. Um, now a uh, expat who lives in the United States but uh, at the time he was um, I didn't even know who he was when I first took his class yeah. and then sort of like found out just how incredible like uh, his writing was and and uh, his influence and everything but I was working on a self-directed uh, project with him and I kept sort of coming up on, with these uh, ideas that were about that breaking down that wall and like so I'd loved like a lot of the uh, theater that does that yeah. um and uh and it reminded me that when i was a kid i loved this tv show where um it was like a send-up of batman called batfink oh i love batfink yeah and yeah not many people know about I, that well, show if you lived in that area of like i i lived in mississauga so we were what, getting hamilton stations so yeah you might have been on the hamilton uh, or something or the toronto stations or yeah, I think was great. And and it, it had this neat quality of like um, <laughs> the narrator would often like help the main character out of situations. Yeah. So like whenever there's a voiceover narrator, like in Batman, it's supposed to just observe, right? Yeah. Like, oh, Batman's in trouble. Who could help save the dastardly whatever? But in this one, the narrator would often like like drop a rope down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. I forgot. And help the main character out of like situations, ah. which I found like fascinating as a kid. I was just sort of like, you can't do that. Like that's hilarious. <laughs> uh, and and when I was a kid, my favorite book was The Monster at the end of this book, um, I that which book. is a yeah a story mm -hmm. with Grover in it. Yeah. 
and Grover uh, begs the reader not to turn the pages because every time you turn the page, you get closer to the monster at the end of the book. Wow. Right. And and I, so it's just been my favorite. But when I was a child, my mom read it to me over and over again. When I was working on this project, I realized it all started with those types of things. Like I was fascinated by that, whatever it is, like that uh, interaction, really interaction that that willful sort of like breaking of the narrative structure, mm -hmm. the the proper way to tell the story, or whatever you want to call it, um, proper way to write a poem. So yeah, so and then like later on, would find like writers who did that pretty well. Um, like Ted Berrigan, who I mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. kind of does that sometimes. Um, and so I like that, uh, you know, you're, you're just reading something and all of a sudden you're like called out and you're like, oh, like in the future <laughs> when maybe poems aren't written on paper, but they're on some device or virtual reality or something, and you know the person reading it, you can just put their name in like, hey, Susan. You really pay attention. You really, <laughs> like, I know you're you you're not you need more coffee and you're not. Yeah, you, you didn't really read that last line very well. And, <laughs> you went and, too fast. And when I'm reading, I love those moments where you're just sort of like you're in the world of the thing, and then all of a sudden you're pushed out, and you're like, whoa, like where where am I now? Like you see the thing that you're reading, think about the thing you're experiencing, but then you're back in your living room and kind of put in that. It it brings the entire world into that uh, moment. Mm -hmm. um, and so I find that fascinating and I try, I try to play with that and, and do that. Um, but, uh, but, but in, in that poem specifically, the line, like, wouldn't it be great if I could get the reader to help me clean my garage? Like it would be, it would be yeah. like, I would really appreciate that. <laughs> no I could one have used someone to it. come over here <laughs> and do ask. the cleaning and tidying that we had to do the day before the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good um, next time. <laughs> and I guess that was also kind of a tongue in cheek dig at some of the theory I'd read it was all yeah. like the reader constructs the meaning uh the reader <laughs> the, you know put a bunch of words down on the page and the reader will turn it into a poem aren't I magical um yeah. and uh I like the idea though it makes me less work for me <laughs> well and and uh, and I'm being I'm being facetious yeah, yeah. like I actually do kind of love that that idea and mm -hmm. and the I try to play with that in the book like the the tension between like what is what does Jason mean by putting these words mm. in this order? And then Jason can't possibly mean anything by putting these words in this order. So why are they here? But like if we're asking the reader to do all this work and construct all this stuff, why not they do something, you know, more useful for me, which is come help me clean my garage. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and and so I, I think there is something kind of beautiful though in 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 uh in as a reader, having that space to make up whatever you want. Yeah. Like you're often just dictated to, like you're reading a story about whatever it is and mm -hmm. it the it is exactly what it is. And you can have like higher level sort of thinking about how this fits into the socioeconomic climate, how mm -hmm. it, you can get really smart about all your readings of the poem, but like it is what it is, a story about something. Um, mm -hmm. And you can, you can kind of go deep on like, the symbolism or whatever you want to do but like take all of that away just put some words on a page and then the three of us if we read them would maybe have drastically different ideas about why those three words mean anything or why those words how those words interact um and I, accessing that i think is fascinating ties into what you were saying about colors when we started as well perceptions of it how it's different different people yeah, yeah, totally. See, that um, was very quiet. I don't even know if that's going to show up. Oh, on the... I said it reminds me of what you said <laughs> earlier on in the podcast about colors and our perceptions. Of there you it. Go. 
Yeah. I guess the other part of the question, you've answered a little bit already, but I'm still thinking about Batfink. So I can imagine he's got this big head. And yeah, you remember. Anyway, yeah. what writers do you turn to for Whimsy and Play other than, I guess you already mentioned McCaffrey and. and uh, yeah, BP Nickel, like yeah. Four Horsemen, um, a lot of that stuff. Uh, Ted Berrigan is somebody who. Uh, I find more and more I kind of go back to. I've only um, really read his sonnets, the ones that I, I love those sonnets. They're beautiful, and, yeah. yeah. And they're so interesting and... Playful, yeah. weird. Um, and in some ways, like, very demonstrate sort of exactly what I've been talking about. Like, it's this play of, oh, I understand these words and exactly how they interact. And then what Change is he talking order, about? Like, yeah, it doesn't you... make any sense. And, <laughs> and so he assembled those in, like, a cut-up manner. Yeah. And, uh, you know, but that's not the point, right? It's in some in some for some people like they would go on and on about how they cut up the the source material and rearranged it and that would be enough they'd be like meh i think i, I did that i, I think i did that when i wrote uh, when i got kiki i think i've got in my book i got a whole thing about cut ups and stuff so yeah i've, I've gone, gone on and on about that part and it's awesome fun <laughs> um everyone should do it it's great fun for assembling a a piece of text to uh to do things with it helps um, a lot it, it it sort of brings out things like images that are quite unique and mm -hmm. then make you think about them and you go yeah but that's kind of interesting it's not just the fact that this word is adjacent to that word that's created a whole new thing right Which yeah and in cool ways thing. that like you would have never put those two words no, together and no. all of a sudden like pancake and horseshoe are and you start thinking about you have it. a horseshoe pancake <laughs> there you go <laughs> you you put uh, pancakes on your horse and see how far you can get um <laughs> But and, and as I say, all of this, of course, the next thing I'm writing is all that. <laughs> so all cut ups. Just put my this? put my foot right in my mouth. Put your put your pancake horseshoe <laughs> put my right pancake in my mouth. Horseshoe right in my mouth. <laughs> Perfect. Well, I'm I I find I don't know. I've been working a lot. I've been very satisfied with doing the remixes. Every time I try it now and just do subject verb object and sort of the. I, I feel so disappointed with myself. I feel like I'm just being programmed. It's like like I've been programmed to. I, I have a ho horrible uh, haunting by cliches. Mm. You know? So I'm, I find it helps me. And I, I call them guided remixes because I, I'm going to not just leave them as they are. I'll, yeah. I'll tamper with them too afterwards. That's but, the fun part. Yeah, like, it is. Yeah. It's uh, knowing what sticks and what doesn't. And yeah, yeah. it's fun. So some of the poems in uh, this book cursed objects cursed now we're saying cursed <laughs> cursed object uh, i love it <laughs> uh, they first appeared in earlier chat books so um cursed objects first appeared as an above ground press chat book in 2014 what made you decide to make this essential exploration of the book and did you revise the work from the chat book to book yeah i definitely revised it uh and uh i mean rob's been incredible for like supporting me and in, in all these sort of weirdnesses that I try out um, but uh, I think when I was writing the book it felt like it went too far to one side with the playful experimentation weirdness uh, and it was missing sort of like a part of me like a hmm. uh, like you said Aaron like you write those poems so do I like those are the poems I, I love and and go back to so I wanted them represented in the book in some way. And uh, as I was sitting there banging my head against it, the chapbook was sitting on the table and I was like, oh, there it is. Like I should put those poems in this book. Um, and they fit neatly in the book. Uh, and I kind of allude to this later. And I think you, you have a question about it later so we yeah. can return to it. But um, 
in some ways they're about like the book is about how through language we treat people like objects basically like your mm -hmm. server at a restaurant uh, is doing a service for you uh, they become kind of an object and uh, and so we sort of online especially see this where people are reduced to the words that they use um, so somebody might have a bad day say something rude or off and the whole internet falls on them that person could be great that person could be 364 days of the year it could be the nicest best person in the entire world but they did something mm -hmm. online that everyone saw and so their their whole being is sort of not visible but those words are and they become those words for people interesting in a way um and so i thought about with the charm when i wrote the chat book it had nothing to do with any of that it was just a book about people I love and uh, who mean a lot to me and who might not know that. And so it was a chance to, to tell them. And then, um, and I was thinking about uh, Robert Creeley's book by the same name and, and uh, thinking about his influence in my life. So it's a, uh, it was sort of a, a, the chapbook version was that. And then when I dropped it into this book, I realized it's doing something else. Now I've invoked all of these people in words as objects mm -hmm. um, to try to convince people that I'm nice and <laughs> that I that I think about people and like people and and so people need convincing of that I don't know but but you so. have to always think like as a writer like why did yeah. I do that right yeah. like why is that there um, and it becomes sort of like independent of whatever intention I had for it and starts to mm -hmm. play with yeah. the poems around it for play sure. with yeah. the the it themes of the, the book text, so. Yeah. So you wrote um, about the charm and the notes of the book. I think I think he put it quite quite wonderfully. And if you don't mind, I'm just going to read a paragraph that you in your notes about the charm. Um, the poems I wrote to several of my close friends and family in this section heightened the stakes of treating people as objects constructed of words. By reducing the people I love to the status of a reference, I create a bifurcated space where they become useful to me and where I can indicate to them their importance in my life. These might be the cruelest poems I have ever written because of that duality. I thought it was a really interesting point you made. And I was thinking too, um, in addition to the dedications, there's also, you know, um, epigraphs get used a lot, right? In, 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 uh, in literature and poems and you use a lot of them in this, in this book. Do you think that they function differently than dedications or are they, is it a similar like framing that you're, that you're doing with the epigraphs? Um, I think they function similarly in the sense that, uh, they're supposed to, connote something like they're mm -hmm. supposed to be like a a, a reason that they're there mm -hmm. um and often like epigraphs are there to say to people like i'm smart i've read i've read these <laughs> right. books yeah i've i know these thinkers just like the dedications are to say i'm a nice person <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> so i think they just to be like brutal with it like they uh. they have a function and they perform that right you look at the dedication you're like shit i haven't read Zizek, I don't like, uh. holy crap, this person must be really smart. Now I will read their book knowing that they're very smart. So like set, it warms up the scene, it sets the tone, like it's, it, uh, it functions in that way. That's me being sort of like kind of brutal and tongue in cheek is. about yeah, it a yeah, little bit. Yeah. Um, but, but like the book is a constructed thing, right? Like these, these, these things are constructions. Like this is not, mm -hmm. this is not, uh, there's an element of, of fakeness to all of this. Mm -hmm. And then I think for a lot of people, they try to pretend it's not there. 
mm-hmm. that this is just like an authentic representation of everything they feel and think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you know, it, it can it can kind of be that, but it's you have to also acknowledge like, well, no, like you sat down, you put these words in this order and uh, words themselves are fake. Like all language is fake at some level. It's all arbitrary. We just all agree that it works the way it does and then it becomes true. Like uh, they're just sounds <laughs> that we make. Uh, and then through reception, we sort of acknowledge that we're going to let them function in this way between us. And now we have a contract, right? Like it's, it's, uh, and so like we're far afield from the question and I apologize for that, but, um, (laughs) but horseshoes and pancakes is what it's all about. (laughs) (laughs) The quote that, uh, that you read, um, I guess that's what I was getting at in, in my earlier explanation. Like it's, I've invoked these, these people, I've pulled them into my book. Uh, why these people and why not my friend from grade school? Why not yeah. the, mm-hmm. some random person that nobody in the world would know? Or a made up person. Or a completely made that? up person. I've, I've used epigraphs that I've totally made up. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I love that. What's one about pushing against the something or others? Yeah, yeah. I created a name that sounded a little bit like Emma <laughs> Goldman. That's, just awesome. Kind of, yeah, That's awesome. Play with epigraphs. One thing that in this quote that I thought was very interesting is that you say they become useful to you in the context of the poem. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about like that from like an ethical point of view. Mm-hmm. Do you think that it is? And you and you you know you mentioned this when you're saying like the cruelest cruelest poems you've ever written in a, in a way. Do you think that there is like what, what do you think of that using people in that in that way in, in your life and putting them in a poem and is that like a is it like a you know is it just being an honest representation of your life or your feelings for someone or is it is it kind of stealing them and using them for your own you know benefit these are the hard questions this is the part of the show where we have like uh damn you're good yeah it's like it's like one of those talk shows where they bring out you know the this is your neighbor from 1992 and <laughs> he doesn't like being in your poem so uh well and it's, i think it's a good question no it's a great question yeah. epigraphs yeah. function similarly that you could make the same sort of argument but with an epigraph usually you don't you're not friends with the person so it's a little it's probably a little bit different because you don't have that same sort of relationship with them it's not you just can... you're trying to sell the other person's book through epigraphs yeah. <laughs> that's another great idea damn it we could have advertisements in it product yeah, placement pay, pay to play yeah, yeah. So, so what do you think about the ethics of either epigraphs or dedications do you uh well to return to your sort of setting them up as like uh is it this or is it that? I would say both. Yeah. Uh, it is an honest expression. Um, because of the genuine feelings I do have for the people that I've dedicated yeah. things to, uh, especially myself. There's a poem yes, that I dedicated to me. Yeah, so. I love that. I love that. <laughs> I wanted to get in on the mix. Um, but <laughs> you felt left out otherwise. Yeah. Like, how can I be cruel to myself? But, yeah. um, but the... The other side of that is that, like, they do they do have a function, right? They do serve a function, um, and uh, and it would be dishonest to kind of like pretend otherwise. Like, yeah. I would I would say. So as to the ethics of it, uh, I think that that is a a deceptively simple question. Um, there's a lot that you can say about that, uh, and you can imagine like you know misrepresenting other people's experiences mm-hmm. by pulling them into uh into into at least like contextually into a relationship with whatever you're writing yeah um and that could go wrong um 
Yeah, it didn't really occur to me to think that people might not want to have a poem dedicated to them. <laughs> That's a very interesting angle. Now you're going to have to go back and ask people, how did you feel about this? Or... One of my uh, epigraphs is to like a random person on, it's from a random person on the internet. I don't mm. even remember where I found it. I, I <laughs> tried to Google it and I can't, I can't find it anymore. Uh, maybe someone else will be able to, but, uh, but I left it in there because I was sort of like in my notes, it said literally that yeah, it was, yeah. like, from a random place on the internet or something. And I, I left it in there because I wanted to highlight the the constructedness and the sort of artificiality. Um, and so, like, I've invoked, the, especially in the epigraphs, the names of these people sort of purposefully and specifically mm -hmm. uh, because they're supposed to, like, symbolize or represent certain things, yeah. like deep thinking or coolness. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, but it's, it's, again, to get at that, like, subversion of the constructedness of the thing and and uh and the constructedness of myself in text in a lot of ways there's another i'm not you want to ask that no no but you do it actually okay uh um, i think that number 10 is supposed to be part yeah, of that yeah 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 so there's another um there's another i thought your notes actually were i love the notes i don't usually people don't usually do that in the book they it's almost like uh we're not supposed to explain or talk about and i and i find the what you did in the book was actually i really liked it with with the notes and kind of just giving a bit of context because i think mm -hmm. that is um the opposite of pretentious really it's kind of just it's laying it out there yeah it's, it's pretentious. there you go there's no pre it's post-tentious <laughs> so there's pretentious and contentious oh yeah those are both not good yeah but tentious is fine sure i like tentious yeah i'll take it <laughs> So yeah, I, I quite liked it. Anyway, there's another really good uh, in the first part of the notes section. We're talking about the book as a whole. I really liked the, this this paragraph, and I'll ask you a question about it after. The poems and cursed objects orbit the idea of objects as distinct from me, not given their characteristics or existence solely by my will, thought, or existence. Technological innovations are challenging the status of objects as extensions of my sovereignty, and the arrow that pointed from me at the center to them all around me is now pointing both ways. <laughs> I am given an existence by objects literally courtesy of medical technology or protection from climates that would be harmful, and more subtly in the sense that in some cases I am an accumulation of data to them. I am their human. And that's what we were talking about that earlier yeah, on the podcast. It's and that's interesting. I think you've summed it up, uh, summed it up quite well, quite well there. Um, <laughs> So there's there's some things you might want to poke out in that quote, but I'll start off by asking, okay. in what ways do you find writing poems about technology to be cathartic, uh, or, or do you find it to be cathartic? Because this is wrestling with a whole existential sort of crisis in a way too, right? Yeah, that's super interesting. I, I, uh, I have had people who have heard these poems or read the book come up to me and think that I'm anti-technology or I'm really like like Google's watching all of us and listening yeah. to everything. And I put on my tinfoil hat and they can't, they can't know what I'm thinking. Uh, in actual fact, I'm a huge technophile. Like I, I'm, I'm, I recognize the, uh, awkwardness and, uh, discomfort and, and weird place we're in with like just handing over all this data to corporations yeah. who have no other purpose than to make money off of us. Um, it's weird and to think that they would genuinely care for our well-being is sort of dangerous and scary but uh, <laughs> at the same time um, I have a computer in my pocket that's more powerful than like the first five computers I owned in my life I'm actually a bot I'm not even here at all. <laughs> amazing Just, yeah I do. <laughs> um, and 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 so I I, I uh, 
I kind of love like what technology is enabling in some ways and then am, am sort of cautiously optimistic that like all the bad stuff will get figured out in future generations uh, because it's all brand new, right? Like yeah. this is all, we haven't really done this before. This is kind of a new mode that we're in. Um, so would you say it's more of an exploration than it is a catharsis when you're writing about it? Yeah, although I, I like your use of the word cathartic. It's Amanda's. I think. I like Amanda's. I like your use of Amanda's. I didn't word, remember cathartic. that. So you could have just taken credit for that because I, I, I didn't remember. I, um, I it was it was actually the bot. Right? Yeah. Clearly not me at all. You just fed this to a, an online AI and Absolutely. Had them spit questions they, back. They, it's great. We, it's called the podcast creator, and it just sort of comes up with questions. I love it. Yeah. Um, because I think there is there is a catharsis there. Um, Often you can feel powerless against this sort of onslaught of technology. Um, you know, if you you can't ride the bus if you don't have your card filled up with the right currency. Well, if you don't have a if you don't know how to use an, the internet or a computer or whatever, what happens when cash disappears? Yeah, like you're, you're you can't take public transit anymore. Like it's a weird sort of uh, space that we're creating, um, and uh, and so I think it can be cathartic to sort of like kick back against that a bit, push back, make fun of it, uh, mm. empty it of all of its meaning and power and uh, and reclaim some of it. You said something earlier about how the objects around us are sort of becoming, we're becoming their, their human. Mm -hmm. Like we're, their, we're objects to them. Do you think that it is like the objects that we're becoming being used by them? Or do you think it's something a little more, we'll say sinister and that the fact that these objects were created by corporations, like you said, and the reason why they're gathering this data from us or using us is to for a means to some sort of end. Mm -hmm. So would you say it's the the objects that are sort of using us or the objects are sort of the middleman between the, you know, corporations or whatever who are in, in turn actually using us? Um, I don't think the technology or objects is a proxy for the corporations. Uh, and I say that because I think technology, as we're sort of talking about it right now, is kind of like language in a way. Mm. Like language can be weaponized and used against us. And, right. Yes, and can be, is, <laughs> maybe, yes. Yeah, we can, we can be very easily manipulated without even knowing it by language. Technology is similar in that sense. Um, but in both cases, they can be kind of detourned, like, like drink. Uh, they can be <laughs> taken back and used in ways that were never predicted by the people who want to make money or make right. who true. have ulterior motives. Um, and so I think that, that that's the opportunity that kind of gets me sort of excited about, mm -hmm. about technology. And, and uh, I'm maybe too old to really do much with it. I'm just going to be in the thrall of it now until, <laughs> until death, but the future generations, <laughs> the kids out there, uh, my kids, yeah. uh, I think are going to do incredible things and and uh, hmm. and do things that we we fundamentally cannot and and shouldn't be able to visualize at this point. We had an interview uh, oh, a while back now with Guillaume Morissette. Mm. Remember that? And it would be an interesting because he talked a lot about both technology and social media and sort of uh, 
you know, discussing our role and responsibility and all that's interesting and in, in, in what we could do in this sort of environment. And yeah. it would be an you, the two of you would have an interest. Well, I, I'd like to think the two of you would have an interesting conversation about that. And yeah, I'd, I'd like I'd to like record to. it. <laughs> there you go. That's my role in that. Sort I would of like thing. that. I think I think for some people, they get really caught up in their agency, like it's their problem to solve right now mm -hmm. immediately. Mm -hmm. um, maybe that's informed a bit by mortality. Like, I don't know what it is, but. Uh, I think it's important to have those conversations. I think it's important to think about those things. Uh, but I think you also have to always factor in that unknown or that random variable of the future. Like um, with the internet was something like people couldn't necessarily have predicted no. to the letter. Um, and so I think we've at various times we've been in these sort of crisis modes where we're like, we'll never get out of this. Yeah. But really that's because whatever generation is sort of a, of thinking age at that point uh, can't imagine a world yeah. differently. And that's because they were immersed in it. They were brought up in it. They created it in many ways. So they, they literally cannot think outside that box that they've made for themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there's a danger in assuming that like, because you see it that way forever and ever, amen, it's gonna be that way unless you somehow heroically figure it out. Uh, I think we should be trying. I'm not saying we should give up and just like roll over and pitch it to the kids and hope hope that they do it. But any discussion like that should factor in the fact that like we have a limited visibility into these things mm -hmm. and uh, the children growing up today are gonna have access to technology and uh, means that we don't even currently understand or, or see. Well, I think that's part of the, the fear, the scary part of it is when you're talking about these objects that are sort of using us. And I agree with you when, when, you're, when you put it like that. And it's that we, it's all happening so quickly and we didn't there's no there's no reference point for it and that's so it might not be necessarily bad but it's unknown and that's kind of what's kind of freaky with yeah if there's these um our phones are listening to us and doing things like that and uh using us as data points to for some other you know object for some other objective yeah um it's just a whole it's something that we just can't um relate to completely yet yeah, I think there there are there are definitely like analogs like the industrial revolution would be something that like yeah. rolled over us and like radically yeah. transformed uh, the world in ways that at the time we couldn't necessarily grapple with like yeah. it it yeah. it really threw the world for a loop um, and this would be something similar um, and I I think uh, like. I have this thought in my head about the the sort of the way things have happened and like there used to be sort of boundaries around groups of people mm. so there was like I don't know marketing and advertising and things like that all happened like in town and then you'd mm -hmm. go to your home and yeah they couldn't get you mm -hmm. and then <laughs> gradually uh the towns became the place where people lived so then like marketing was around you you'd mm -hmm. see posters uh people would come to your door and try and sell you bibles like okay fine and then, um, the, but the walls of your home are that boundary now. Yeah. You're like, yeah, but you can't come in. Like, I'll, I'll take a look at your vacuum, but then GTFO and, <laughs> and I'm going to go back to making Sunday dinner. I don't care. And then TVs came in and radios and like we started, the, then the home was permeable. So now mm -hmm. you were under assault in your own home and you had to build up willpower against these messages that were coming in. Mm -hmm. Um, and so for a while then, like, I don't know what the next boundary was, like the body was maybe the last boundary there. So that mm -hmm. was in your home, but like not in your head yet. Uh, and then 
fast forward a couple of years, the internet, now smartphones, like now it's it's sort of like the boundary. Yeah. It's literally yeah. at the last boundary. Like yeah. it's on our skin. It's at our side yeah, constantly. Always with us. The next um, boundary will be the right into our directly into our brains or I had into a, our body. Yeah, right. Like something. So I, I think like that's that's a story that I'm really interested in kind of tracking and thinking about. Uh, it's briefly touched on in this book, but it's not something I really dwell too much on. Mm. Um, and I jokingly sort of send it up in in another book that I wrote, I Robot, like mm -hmm. many years ago. I don't have that one. Um, <laughs> and uh, and it's this idea that like at some point, because we're terrible, like we're going to do this to ourselves where like we'll be like, uh, your pacemaker will stop working if you don't pay your monthly bill right. or whatever. Like, well, I just heard something. Um, <laughs> it was uh, kids. It was is someone invented some app where um, if um, if the kids don't message their parents back, their phone they can't use at their phone. That's wow. it. We're done. You can't. Amazing. Use, yeah. <laughs> I mean, and, like when I was growing up, my neighbor had a version of that. Like your parent would lean out the door and yell, "Like it's yeah. time for dinner," or like yeah. the street lights are on. And if you didn't holler back, like yeah, yeah they'd you, be out there'd be, for be you. in trouble. That's it. I I won't I won't mention the name of the personal assistant in this house because mm. it will set it on. But mm -hmm. uh, on the CBC, I was listening to, and and the CBC C announcer said the last humanoid, and it went bloop. I'm like, uh oh, <laughs> now what? The overlords are coming. Oh no, yeah. That was the key. Um, and so there's something fascinating about that to me because like. Uh, it's flattering to think of myself as a very attractive set of data that someone yeah. would want access <laughs> to, right? They want to know everything in my head. How flattering. I must be great. Um, but in actuality, what they're collecting is like, uh, it includes like my son's playing with this machine. Mm -hmm. So they're asking questions like, uh, what's the loudest fart and stuff like that. Like there's your, there's your marketing data. Like, congratulations. <laughs> Some poor sap has to like listen to hours and hours of my child, like asking about farts and burping into the, uh, digital assistant. That's it. So I, so I, I do think it's, you know, future generations will, will not, maybe not be as doom and gloom about it all and we'll figure it out. So that's hopeful. That's a little hopeful. Mm -hmm. I feel like we've already addressed this business well, yeah. about your, 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 which is my, our number 11 here, but for people at home, you don't know about your dressing your, um, or at home or wherever you happen to be listening to the podcast. Uh, you're talking about, uh, using your name in the book. So yeah. I feel like, I feel like we've talked about that. You want to uh, ask the last one then? All right. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> I re asked this question because, uh, in, in your first chapbook, uh, above ground press chapbook, 8th Avenue, 15th, Street Northwest, which I happen to have from 2004, you say Jason Christie is secretly Jason Wasabi of the death metal grind act Wasabi. And now I'm fascinated by that. If they knew he wrote romantic fiction, they would laugh him out of the band. This is a great bio. He's also known as High C White Louisiana rapper from hell. I'm guessing you were joking. I wish all of that were true. I know, me too. About me, but I will say those are true things, true facts about other Jason Christie. That's Sorry. great. That's great. I, I yeah. yeah. So, um, my, I guess, is there a connection between your? Because you, you are, you are actually, you do make music. He's. I'm gonna link to his uh, Bandcamp uh, thing, and there, it's, it's fun. It's, it's kind fun. of you to call it music. Well, it's, it's, um, it's music. I, 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 I was right? listening to yeah, it when sure I was it's noise to other people. I was listening to it when I was when I was Full writing circle. these questions. So you know. And I can't remember writing them so clearly it had an effect on me. Wow. But do you have do you feel there's any connection between your poetry and your uh making Sounds. of other things that aren't that you don't want to call music, but I think it's music. 
Uh, there definitely is, um, yeah. and I promise to return to it. But uh, before we move away from dear Jason Wasabi, <laughs> uh, I, I should explain that a little bit. Natalie Simpson copped mm-hmm. that uh, biography for like an issue of Filling Station. Oh yeah, that I was in around the same time as that chapbook came out, and I loved it. So I you used it. Used it again, but uh, it's a great bio. It's it's the last time. It's the bios are like that. Mm. The rest of them are not as playful. I'm. Yeah. I'm going to insist on the next book having a more playful bio. I used to be super into that. Like yeah. and, and and a few people were at the time and and I I wasn't sure how it was sort of being received or tracking with other people cuz sometimes you just want to know like yeah. who, who is this person? I would like to read more yeah. things by them. Well, you had and enough if, room to do both in that one. Yeah, that's a great. And you're playful with your most recent one. You had the yeah. misspelling of language. And... Yeah, yeah, that that was really. <laughs> 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 We should have yeah, Charles put an effect. Boing. It's, a, it's just all about tearing down the patriarchy at there some you go. point. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, and so there, there's a guy named Jason Z. Christie, who is Jason Wasabi, I think, uh-huh. and was in that band, I think. Um, and he's, he's a novelist in the States. He's written a ton of books. You can find him online. Um, and he messaged me once and was like, we're both named Jason Christie. We should collaborate. That's a great idea. And I was like, what? <laughs> um, and for whatever reason, we just never communicated again. Maybe he'll hear this thinking Maybe. it's about him. A and, shout out uh, to all the Jason Christies, especially ones with who are in death metal bands. And, what have you. <laughs> uh, and, and so, yeah, we'll leave it at that. But I was definitely not in, I wish I was in some sort of cool thing, like uh, any kind of core band. Um, that would have been great. But... Uh, I but you do, do like wasabi. I do love wasabi. Oh, there you go. And we have I, some. <laughs> I do make um, noise. And thank you for calling it music. It's <laughs> I approach it similarly to poetry in the sense that like, like I would call it almost noise poems. Like that's mm-hmm. how I really how I refer to it in my head when I'm talking to myself because I'm crazy. But uh, <laughs> it uh, and so it's it's approaches music in the similar way that I approach poetry it's this edifice you're supposed to do it right there are tools to do it right yeah uh, if you're making a song it's supposed to sound like other songs uh you're an idiot if you can't do that right <laughs> and i look at all of that and i'm like well gross like i want to try something different like i i don't want to just do like a bad version of an ed sheeran song <laughs> uh, i'd rather do something else uh i'd rather get at the play with the sort of fundamental building blocks and try and put them together in a different way um so it comes from that sort of impulse to to get in and mess around and um, with the the music that I make, I try to make it all with like free or or yeah. software that's easy to use on any version of a computer because I feel like uh, that's also appealing to me, like just using what what is to hand. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and so I use a program called Audacity. Yeah. And uh, we do not use that for this, but. That's I what I think... use when I record it. Yeah, 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 it's pretty great. And they're not sponsoring us. <laughs> Nor is Lagavulin once more. <laughs> yeah, wait a minute. Um, What's going on? And uh, and so yeah, so it's 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 kind of that. Um, I just I just love to sort of get her in and like mess around with various things and yeah. It's whimsical. It's right. Whimsy, Very much but, so. Yeah. yeah, I'm I'm led by like whimsy and serendipity for a lot of my creative. No work. wonder we get along. <laughs> I'm very. I haven't heard your music before. I'm very curious now. Yeah, it's uh, are you playing instruments or? No, I have no musical training, and uh, and uh, you can still play instruments without musical training. Pretty sure. Yeah, true. Pretty sure I'm tone deaf. Says, says an experience. I'm self-taught. Yes. Yeah. 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 
I admire people who are who can like who can just open their mouths and beautiful things. Uh, so what do you? What's the sounds like? What sounds of oh. what? Uh, YouTube recordings. Um, breathing. It's, like it's fragment. <laughs> it's fragmentary. In Very fragmented. So it's like found sounds kind of thing. A lot of it, or um, audacity has this thing where you can just generate a tone. So I'll take that and then stretch it, cut it, invert it. Um, maybe play it out loud and then record it through a microphone, like stuff like that to generate okay. the raw material. Um, and then I just try and assemble it or layer it in interesting ways. Okay. Um, lately I've gotten into this software called VCV, which is like a Euro rack synthesizer emulator you can get. Um, okay. So you can load up all those modules and then that's just another input for raw material. So you can just get these weird blips and bloops playing. Cool. Um, and then I take all of it and just try and smash it apart and then smash it back together. I have a digital effects box and electric guitar. That's amazing. I know, and I do not. I mean, I haven't, I was, it was a gift. So it's something I haven't played with much of, but if you ever want, you, if you ever, if, if, if you ever enjoy it, you could, you could borrow it at some point. Yeah. Thank something. you. I admire people who can do all of that oh, I stuff. <laughs> it's physical. <laughs> yeah. It, and it, it sort of blows my mind. So I've, I've yeah. met uh, two people in town, um, hilariously, like, our kids all went to school together so we'd like <laughs> drop we'd be talking during drop off or pick up at, at their school and uh during a play date um they were sort of like uh, we were like what kind of music do you like and they were like well weird stuff and i was like well tell me what weird stuff <laughs> i also listen to weird stuff and we had like weird stuff in common That's, weird that is music unusual we isn't it yeah. very random yeah. and to have met them through like such an mm. odd like we weren't at a concert we weren't like nerding out in forums like it was just this random <laughs> mm -hmm. random thing and so the three of us have tried putting together some pieces mm -hmm. uh that, that we like and uh they are both like very good at what they do mm -hmm. and i feel a bit like an imposter because i'm just like ah i Let's recorded some audio from <laughs> short circuit too <laughs> and then i just stretched it a bit and uh and he's he's got like a, one of them has like effects pedals and guitar. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. It's very good at using a Eurorack synthesizer and like all this stuff. And uh, so I often just feel like I'm like, yeah, I burped, and then I just slowed it down a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it sounded great. <laughs> it sounded just like bass. Um, that sounds really cool. I'm gonna have to listen to it. Well, well, well if with your permission, we'll we'll include the link to the. Oh sure, yeah. yeah it's uh, it's just sort of something I like to do on the side. It's not uh, like. I wouldn't I wouldn't dare call it music it's uh it's definitely just noise all right but I uh, I, I was enjoying no I, I know I haven't bought it yet but I, I have played it a few times so the the most recent one actually mm. I've played a few times in the background for cool. things that's that's neat to hear yeah. it uh and and I don't mean to say to disparage it by saying it's noise like I noise isn't a bad thing purposefully wanted yeah. to be considered noise <laughs> noise is a genre too yeah yeah that's noise true rock it is. And noise, yeah. yeah any anything else that you care to add at this point we've, we've we've run out of pages goodness uh no um but uh i'm honored to be on the podcast and thank you very much for having me we are honored to have it's, you uh, yes it's thank an incredible you. thing you're doing so it's, it's a lot of fun and it's just been quite fun thanks yes. Thank you, and uh, check out Jason Christie's book, Cursed Objects, or Cursed, Cursed Objects. <laughs> check out his music, and then you can decide if it's poetry or music, or if you like it, and everything else. Okay, thanks for listening. Small Machine Talks, with Amanda Earl and A.M. Kozak. <laughs>